We are in a series called Love Revolution, and we're studying uh, the epistles of John, the three letters that he wrote. And I've mentioned it the last couple of times we've been together, but all of John's writing is, is kind of crammed together in uh, just the last few years of his life toward the end of the first century. He's not, uh, he's there, he writes his own gospel, but that's written later. Uh, he's a disciple of Jesus, he walks with Jesus, but we don't really hear a lot from John until the very end of his life and the very end of the first century. And that's when he writes his gospel and these three letters and the book of Revelation. And uh, I think the reason he writes is very obvious when you read his letters. He feels like somebody's got to say something because there's so much false doctrine floating around. And so we've titled this Love Revolution because really it's love in a different way than what you may have ever considered before. Uh, John's not just writing about God's love toward us. He writes about that, but he writes about how we need to love God and be his children. So we're going to pick it up uh, right where we left off last week. We're in uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. And John says, in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. It is obvious. It is manifest. This is how you recognize them. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. It doesn't matter what they say or if they go to church. If they don't do righteousness, they're not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John says, it's obvious, it's manifest by your actions whose child you are. And he says two things in chapter 3. First of all, real Christians will live a righteous life. And he already talked about that. But he also says, real Christians will love their brother. They will love God's family. John's already discussed doing righteousness. Now he's going to discuss loving God's family, loving our brother. The love revolution that John is talking about is not original with him. He heard this from Jesus himself from the beginning, he says. But John is emphasizing that loving one another, loving the family of God, loving our brothers and sisters has never been more important than it is in times when the world is in tumult and there's false doctrine and false prophets and false spirits floating around. It's never more important. He, he said, not as Cain, don't be like Cain. Uh, he was of that wicked one and he slew his brother. He killed his brother Abel. And wherefore slew he him? That's King James for, and why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. So he said, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. John tells us in his own gospel that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So anybody that follows the devil, they have that murderous spirit that impacts them. It was Satan's influence that led Cain to murder his brother Abel. But don't miss John's point here. He said both Cain and Abel, they were worshiping God. They were making sacrifices at the time. Just before Cain killed his brother, they were at church. They were worshiping God. They were offering sacrifice. But Cain was a false worshiper, just like some people in John's day. His works were evil. Despite his pretense of offering a sacrifice to God, he had evil in his heart. And that's why he hated Abel's righteousness. It was not Abel's issue, it was Cain's issue. And so John says, don't marvel if the world hates you. 
And I would add, because of who John's writing about, don't marvel if worldly church people despise you. He's writing this letter dealing with a false group of people who call themselves Christians. We talked about them the other week. They're the Gnostics. He said, don't, don't, get, uh, don't get alarmed. Don't, don't marvel if people that say they're Christians, but they really follow the world more than Jesus. Don't marvel if they hate you. Why would they hate you? The same reason that Cain hated Abel. They are condemned by your righteousness. And I've lived a long time like most of you have. And it's amazing to me that so-called Christians who talk so much and so often about love can have such undisguised disdain for apostolic believers. That has always amazed me. But it doesn't surprise me because the same thing happened in John's day. These Gnostics who were this offshoot of Christianity, they felt they knew more than the apostles and more than the elders, and they felt they had this newfound freedom and this new revelation. They disdained the apostolics. And that same thing can happen today. John said, we know, on the other hand, that's their spirit, but we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now, he's going to get very plain in this chapter, in the next little bit of this letter, and he's going to get, uh, you might think he's a little repetitious, but he's just driving it home. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother, like Cain, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The way to respond to the hatred of the world or the hatred of other people, whoever they may be, is not ever to hate back, but it's to love. The world is filled with the spirit of hate, the spirit of murder, the spirit of death, but we, the church, Christians, we have passed from death unto life. And that new life causes us to love people we normally would not love. But here's John's point. Especially it should cause us to love people in God's family. You've heard that old saying, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody live in that? Don't raise your hand. You can pick your friends, you're stuck with your relatives. Well, we're God's family. So you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with God's family because you're part of God's family. And John said, if we've got uh, love in our heart, it will manifest itself. If you don't have love for your fellow believers, especially, John said, you're still dead in your sins. Now you remember that Jesus equated hatred with murder. He said, if you hate somebody, you might as well pick up a weapon and murder them because you've got murder in your heart. You don't have to do anything to your brother to be guilty of this sin. It's not about what you do to them. It's not even about what you say to them. It's about what you have in your heart toward them. It's not what you do to them. It's what you would do to them if you could do it to them. That's, that's what John's talking about. Your attitude toward your brothers and sisters, John said, if you hate your brother, no murderer, that's like murder, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Your attitude toward your brothers and sisters can rob you of your salvation. 
So it's important to keep your heart clear and clean. John said, hereby, this is how we perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And so here's the conclusion. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If God would do that for us, then we should do that for others. Remember that in life, the first law of life, of physical life, is the law of self-preservation. That's why um, if somebody pushes you under the water and tries to hold you there, you fight, you squirm, you flail your arms because there's a built-in law in the physical being of yourself, any human being, the physical law of self-preservation. We see it when people are deathly sick. We see it when people are in trouble. We see it when people are in some kind of accident and they've got injuries. They're, they're gasping for breath. They're fighting. It's a law of self-preservation. It's the first law of physical life. But in the spirit realm, it's different. The first law of spiritual life is not the law of self-preservation. It's the law of self-sacrifice. This is how we perceive the law of God, the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And so if we've really got God's love inside of us, we will lay down our lives for the brethren. The standard for our love toward God's family, the standard is God's love toward us. If you want to measure your love for God's family, don't measure it by somebody else. Measure it by God's love for you. He laid down his life for us. He gave everything for us. So it's not enough to simply not do evil toward your brothers and sisters. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so real love involves making a choice to do good toward them. He died for his church. He doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to live for his church. That's what he wants. He wants us to lay down our lives by living for his church. Real love will cost you something. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a sibling, if you're a friend, real love will cost you something. Real love will show up in your words and in your actions. Real love will inconvenience you from time to time and in certain seasons maybe quite often. This is more than just doctrine. John isn't just spouting some theology that has nothing to do with real life. He's about ready to become very, very practical. Here's his next statement. Whosoever has this world's goods, you've got the means, you've got wealth, you've got possessions, and you see that your brother has need, and you shut up your bowels of compassion from your brother, how in the world dwelleth the love of God in him? If you have the means to meet a need and you turn away and you refuse, how in the world would that be the love of God? And then he says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. A lot of people can talk it, but let us love in deed and in truth. John has already made it obvious that you don't have to murder somebody in order to sin. All you have to do is hate them in your heart and it's the same as murder. But now he takes it a step further. He said, 
Oh, you don't even have to hate somebody to sin. All you have to do is be indifferent toward them, and that's sin. If you have the means to meet their need and you choose not to help them, you are not demonstrating the love of God. And so once again, what John's really saying is, hey, apostolic believers, let's not just talk the talk, let's walk the walk. It's really easy to get sidetracked in theological debates, and that just distracts us from real life and real issues. It's like the lawyer who came to Jesus and said, well, who is my neighbor? He was looking for an excuse to exempt himself from getting involved with people that weren't like him and that he didn't care for. Who's my neighbor? He's just looking for an excuse. He's just wanting an exemption. And Jesus answered him like he often did. He answered him with the parable, the story of the good Samaritan. And Jesus was so incredible with this. He just, by telling a story, he changed the focus, not to the whole world. Well, who's my neighbor? That group, this group, that nation, who's my neighbor? He's looking for an excuse. Jesus just cuts to the chase and he changes the focus from all of these nameless, faceless people to one man in need. And he says, there was this man, he was on the side of the road, he's in desperate need, and people start coming by. Jesus didn't only change the focus to one man, he changed the question. See, that man's question was, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, no, I got a better question. Who can I be a neighbor to today? That's the question. That's how we show the love of God. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. He said, as we have therefore opportunity, if you've got an opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but apostolics, especially to them who were of the household of faith. If the church is going to be attractive to the world, they should see among us and between us a love that they don't have any concept of. They know all kinds of things about romantic love. They know all kinds of things about uh, fictional love and musical love and, and love that's portrayed in movies. They know all kinds of stuff. But many people in our world have never seen this love that God shows to us. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited grace. It's unmerited kindness and mercy. They've never seen that. And so Paul wrote, and John's emphasizing the same thing. If you've got opportunity, you do good to anybody you can, but especially do good to those that are of the household of faith. Both John and Paul and, and other New Testament writers, but especially the two of them, they emphasize you should show love to everybody, but you should especially love your church family. And I know that you do. The standard John sets here is particularly high. And the standard he set for us is actually quite difficult to live. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Boy, that's heavy. With so many needs around us all the time coming at us every day, that can be a little overwhelming. We, we certainly can't meet all of these needs with our limited resources. Even Jesus said, you have the poor with you 
always. Jesus never expected that his disciples, his people, were going to eventually get rid of poverty. He said, you're going to have the poor with you always. He said that in Mark 14 and 7. So needs just keep coming at us. Needs come at you, needs come at me, needs come at our church staff and our church family, and we're always trying to meet needs. But here's the point. You can't meet every need in the whole world or even in our whole city with our limited resources. So it's easy to go to one of two extremes. It's easy to just lapse into indifference and shut them out and ignore them But it's just as easy on the other side to lapse into condemnation because we feel like we're never doing enough. We're never giving enough. We're never meeting enough needs. And and you, you were never measuring up. And you can go off the cliff on either side. Either you just get so callous to it that you don't care anymore and you become indifferent or you get so overwhelmed by it. And I've seen people on both sides of that equation. I've seen people, it's in the office, we kind of call it compassion fatigue. We're very careful about bringing uh, too many needs, one after the other, all at once to our church family. It's not because we don't care, it's because we do care about you. And we don't want compassion fatigue to set in, where it's just like, we're overwhelmed. We've got so many needs and these needs are so pressing. So we are really prayerful about which needs we bring to our church family because here's the thing, we can't meet them all. We're one church in one city with a limited number of people. And I would imagine that at least a couple of you have limited amounts of money. Maybe just a couple of you. And so we can't do that. So it would be easy to just close off our minds and our hearts and become indifferent. But here's what I think often happens. It's the other extreme. We just get overwhelmed. And, and we, we almost get condemned like we're, we're not doing enough. We're not giving enough. We're not praying enough. We're not measuring up. And it's easy for that condemnation to settle in your heart. Condemnation is not your friend, but condemnation is the devil's friend. He loves to use it. So here's what John says next. He said, hereby know we are of the, hereby we know we are of the truth. When condemnation settles in, when condemnation tries to attack you, here's how we know we are of the truth. And here's how we assure our hearts before him. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. If our heart condemn us not, then we can have confidence toward God. And he's leading up to this point that prayer is affected by how condemned you might feel. Whatsoever we ask, if we're not condemned, if we've got confidence toward God, whatsoever we ask, we receive of God because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Let me untangle that King James tongue twister. When we truly love God's family, when we're not just loving in word, but we're actually loving in deed, then our hearts have assurance before God because we're doing what he commanded us to do. We're obeying his commandments. We're loving his family. We're doing his will. And so our hearts have assurance. We are not condemned. But the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17 that the human heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked and who can know it? Sometimes, I know this isn't a newsflash to you, you can't trust your own feelings. 
Your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will lead you astray. You can't trust them. And when that happens, John said, then we have to trust the Lord. Because the Lord is greater than our heart. What are you saying, John? I'm saying Jesus is greater than your feelings. And so when the devil starts to push condemnation on you, how do you know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Well, conviction is from the Lord and it makes you want to draw close to God. It makes you want to get things right with God. That's how you recognize conviction. Condemnation doesn't come from God. Condemnation comes from the devil and if you've got condemnation in your heart, you feel like giving up and just throwing up your hands and walking away from God and church and everything else. That's how you recognize condemnation. And John said, if that happens, you need to trust God because he's greater than your heart. He's greater than your feelings. God doesn't just evaluate your actions. God isn't somewhere up in heaven going through a ledger, counting how much you gave in the offering last week. That's not how he operates. I'll tell you what God is looking at. He's looking at the motives of your heart. He knows if you had more to give than you did the week before. He knows if you have more to give than somebody else. God isn't looking at what you're doing as much as he's looking at the motives and the intent of your heart. And so John said, whether your heart condemns you or your heart doesn't condemn you, you can still have confidence before God either way because if the devil's fighting you with condemnation, you tell him to get behind you and you realize that God sees your heart, God knows you're struggling, God knows your motives. And John said, either way, you can have confidence before God. Whether your heart is uncondemned or whether your heart is feeling condemned, you can trust in God because you're genuinely serving him. And you're going to need that confidence if you're going to be effective in praying. He said, that's how we uh, ask and receive of him. If you're condemned, you don't feel like praying. If you're letting the devil get the best of you with condemnation, you don't feel worthy to pray. And John said, you need to put that off and trust God because he knows the real motives of your heart. Now, he's been talking about God's commandments because we keep his commandments. And so he says this next. He said, and this is his commandment. This is his commandment. He just narrowed it from commandments, plural, to commandments, singular. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we should love one another as he gave us commandments. Jesus told us to do this. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and God in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. John just echoed Jesus' teaching. He was there for Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the greatest commandment. And so John's reemphasizing this. He said, our belief in God is evidenced when we keep his commandments and when we love others. And we are empowered to do both of those things by the spirit God has put in us. It is the spirit of God in you, not your religious effort or your to-do list or your good works. It is the spirit of God in you that allows you and permits you and enables you to keep his commandments. But it's also the spirit of God in you that enables you and permits you and allows you to love other people. Because there are a few people on this planet that are slightly unlovable. 
Has anybody driven lately and gotten traffic or whatever? And there are people that are just a little bit unlovable. Maybe you meet them at the mall in the line. Maybe they cut the line. Maybe they cut you off in traffic. There are people that are unlovable, but you can love people through the enabling power of God's spirit. Here's what Jesus said that John remembers. Jesus answered and said, the first of all the commandments is this. Here's the, the greatest, the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and because there's only one God, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and with all thy strength. Jesus said, this is the first commandment. This is the top one, the chief one, the greatest one. And the second commandment is like it. It's similar. It goes along with it. They're joined at the hip, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said, there is none other commandment greater than these. Here's what John is saying. I'm just repeating the words of Jesus. Jesus told us that if we really love God, if we really believe in God, we will do the two greatest commandments. We will love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We'll keep his commandments, but we'll also love other people. Now, Jumping over, there's no chapter divisions in this letter, of course, any more than there would be chapter divisions in a letter you wrote. So John just keeps on going, but he is slightly changing subjects as we open up chapter four. He said, beloved, believe not every spirit. Now he's just been talking to us about you know, trust God's spirit when you can't trust your own heart. Trust God's spirit when you feel condemned. Trust God's spirit when the devil is attacking you. And so that begs a question. How do I know that it's really God's spirit? How do I know that I'm believing the right spirit and I'm following the, the, the right spirit? So beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. John has been discussing the spirit of God. The spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's how Paul said it in Romans 8. God's spirit in us bears witness. We know we're his children because we've got the witness of his spirit. But here's John's point. With so many false prophets and so many false teachings and so many false doctrines and so many false spirits, how can we know for sure that we're following the Spirit of God? John said the answer is to try the spirits, prove them, put them to the test, judge them, evaluate them, prove the spirits, try the spirits. How do you try them? You see if they line up to the word of God. That's how you try the spirits, put them to the test. He said, there's many false prophets. And I would echo what John said, because we live in a day when there are many false prophets and many false doctrines and many false teachers and many false spirits. So we've got to try the spirits. He said, here's how you know the spirit of God. Here's how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that spirit is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. In fact, it is a spirit of Antichrist. And you've heard that that spirit of Antichrist should come. And John said, even now already, it is in the world. Listen to me very carefully. The number one test 
For every spirit, every prophet, every preacher, teacher, church, denomination, or doctrine is what they teach about Jesus Christ. That is the primary test. It's not the only test, but it's the first test. Do they believe Jesus is almighty God or not? Because if they don't believe he's almighty God, don't give them the time of day. Don't read their literature. Don't watch their YouTube videos. Don't give them the time of day if they don't believe that Jesus Christ is almighty God. The Gnostics in John's day, they claimed to follow Jesus, but they didn't believe he was one with the Father. They didn't believe in the oneness of God. They didn't believe Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And John said, that spirit that denies that Jesus is almighty God, that is the spirit of Antichrist. John is the only writer in the New Testament that uses the word Antichrist. He's the only one. And anti means opposed to Christ, against Christ, but it can also mean instead of Christ or in the place of Christ. John said, if any spirit, if any preacher, if any doctrine tries to replace Jesus or tries to oppose the revelation that Jesus is God, you have nothing to do with them. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Can I tell you, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our world long before the person of Antichrist is being revealed. It's been active for years now and it tears down the foundations of the Christian faith and tears down the authority of the word of God. You owe it to yourself not to fill your brain with some atheistic professor spouting nonsense on YouTube. You owe it to your kids to teach them the difference between what is a voice that affirms the word of God and a voice that is questioning the word of God because that is the spirit of Antichrist. John said, but you... You apostolic people, it's not that way with you. You don't subscribe to the false teachings and the false doctrines and the false spirits. You're not tricked by the spirit of Antichrist. You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them. You've overcome all those false spirits and false prophets and false teachers and false doctrine because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We love that verse and we should love that verse because that verse has a general application to the Christian life. We can overcome any evil forces that are in the world because the spirit of God in us is greater. That's the general application. That verse preaches really, really well if you use the general application that whatever's in the world, Jesus in you is greater. That's absolute truth from the word of God. We should love that verse. We should quote it. We should preach it. But this verse also has a specific application to the Christian life. Because John's not just writing about generic things. He's not just writing about generic trials. He's specifically talking about false prophets, false doctrines, false spirits, false churches, false believers. That's what he's talking about. He said, you can overcome all of them because God's spirit within you is greater than the spirit of the lie, you've got the spirit of truth in you. 
Please hear pastor tonight. If it feels weird, get away from it. If it feels off, steer clear of it. You've got God's spirit in you and if your spirit doesn't witness with some doctrine that's floating around, that's Jesus in you saying you don't have to come under that. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It's questioning the Bible. It's questioning holiness. It's questioning the new birth. It's questioning the oneness of God. It's questioning the authority of your spiritual leadership. You don't have to come under that. The spirit of God that is in you is greater than all those spirits that are let loose in the world. They are the spirit of God, but you've got the spirit of they, they are the spirit of evil and the spirit of error, but you've got the spirit of God in you. He says, they are of the world. That's why they speak of the world. But watch this. And the world heareth them. On the other hand, we are of God. He that knows God will hear us. And he that is not of God heareth us not. Now, John gets really blunt here. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how we know. John says false spirits and false prophets and false doctrines are attractive to the world. So the world embraces them wholeheartedly. The world finds their teaching far more appealing than the word of God. And the world embraces the spirit of Antichrist. And the world embraces false doctrines and false prophets and false teachers. But don't you worry about it because the Lord has never required a majority to build his kingdom. He didn't in the Old Testament. He didn't in the New Testament. And he doesn't today. John said, we are of God, not of the world. People who are sincerely seeking truth, they will listen to us, but the world at large is going to ignore us. So just get a grip. Just settle in. Just buckle your seatbelt. You're living in an era like John lived in when the world at large is going to ignore you. The world at large is going to mock you. The world at large is going to disregard you. But out of the world, out, and, and this is us, this is everybody that's here tonight, out of that sin-cursed world, out of that world that is controlled by the spirit of Antichrist, God got to you, and God got to you, and God got to me, God got to your family and my family and pulled us out of the world. So I don't believe that all the sincere people have already been reached. God's got some people out there just like you and me, and we're not going to get everybody, but we're going to get somebody. We're not going to reach everybody, but we're going to reach somebody. And John said, in those sincere people, they will hear us because the, the Lord's going to help us reach those people that are sincere. People that are sincerely seeking truth, they will find it. But he said, the world at large, it's going to ignore the church. Now, to the world, if somebody's listening on the web and they're not a Christian, they think, Wow, that preacher just made an arrogant statement that all the sincere people that are really seeking truth are going to listen to the apostolics. Yeah, you might think that's an arrogant statement, but it's an apostolic statement. It's not arrogant. And John says to all of us, he said, you can know whether a spirit or a prophet or a doctrine is true or false based on this. We know it's the spirit of truth if they listen 
to apostolic teaching. And we know it's the spirit of error if they disregard apostolic teaching. He says it right there in verse six. This is how we know. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we know? The people that love truth, they'll listen to us. The people that don't, won't listen to us. Oh, that's arrogant. No, that's apostolic. That's the apostolic church that has been given the truth to preach. But in our era, just like John's era, when so many people are attacking the church and so many errors are attacking the truth, John's point is that your love for God's family has never been more important. All around, truth, morality, spirituality, uh, the, the church, the Bible, the revelation of the oneness of God, the beautiful truths of holiness, everywhere it's being attacked. Your love for God's family has never been more important because you're going to need God's family in the last of the last days and the end of the end times. John isn't speaking about our love for the unsaved here, although our love for the unsaved is incredibly important. He's not speaking about that right here. He's speaking about our love for each other in the church. He's basically just saying, believers, you got to stick together. Don't let the devil drive a wedge between you and a fellow believer. If there's something there, address it. Talk about it. Pray about it. Get rid of it. Don't let the devil drive a wedge into the church and divide you. You're going to need each other. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We, we like the last three words of that verse. We don't even bother with the rest. God is love. John said, wait a minute, there's a little more to it than just God is love. We need to love each other because number one, love comes from God. Number two, you're not born of God if you don't love. Number three, you don't even know God if you don't love. And number four, after all that, God is love. So the bottom line is, without love, it is absolutely impossible to have a relationship with God. Now in this letter, this very same epistle, John already told us in chapter one that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. Everyone say, God is light. That speaks of God's holiness because there's no darkness in him. There's no sin in him. There's no unrighteousness in him. Now he tells us in chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. God is light talks about God's holiness. There's no sin in him. But when he says God is love, he's speaking of God's kindness because there's no selfishness in God. Without the love of God to redeem us, the light of God would destroy us. Let me back that one up again. Without the love of God to redeem us, the light of God would destroy us. John says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into this world that we might live through him. Herein is love. You want to know what love is? Herein is love. 
Not that we love God, but that before we ever had a chance to love him, before we ever knew enough to love him, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The light of God, which is his judgment on sin, the light of his truth, the light of his holiness, the light of his righteousness, the light of God, which is judgment on sin, and the love of God, which is his mercy towards sinners. The light of God, which would have killed you, the light of God which condemned you because you had so much darkness. The light of God which was holy and pure and true revelation. The light of God would have killed you. But the light of God met the love of God when God came to this earth robed in flesh and died on the cross. Those two things, the light of God and the love of God met together at Calvary. And that's where Jesus became, John said, the propitiation for our sins. Now, he used that word once before in this letter and I guarantee you, you haven't used it since and you haven't thought about it since. We don't go around talking about propitiation, but it's a beautiful word. Propitiation means an atoning sacrifice. He became the atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? It means he paid the price for you when you couldn't have paid the price. He freed you when you couldn't have got free. He lifted you when you were too far down to even lift yourself up. That's what an atoning sacrifice is. Remember that same term was used by that publican who stood in the temple and prayed. On one side, there's a Pharisee. He's praying. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm good. I thank you that I'm great. I thank you, Jesus, that, that, that uh, you know, <laughs> I've made religion great again. I thank you, Jesus. I'm not like that publican over there. And meanwhile, the publican, he doesn't even dare lift up his head. He knows he's a wreck. He knows he's worthless. He knows everybody looks down on him. He knows his life is a disgrace. He knows he's in trouble with God. He doesn't even dare lift up his head, but he prays the prayer that God heard. He prays, prays the prayer that heaven paid attention to. While this Pharisee's over here praying this 411 prayer, you know, listing all of his great attributes, the publican says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he uses the same word. God, be a mercy seat to me, a sinner. God, be an atoning sacrifice. God, be a propitiation. Step in when I can't do anything. Because your light, you're so holy and pure. Your light is going to kill me. I'm not asking for your light. I'm asking for your love. It's what the psalmist was talking about when he said, mercy and truth are met together righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know where that scripture was fulfilled? At Calvary. Hundreds of years after the psalmist penned it, that scripture was fulfilled at Calvary. If God loved us so much that his love could appease his light, if God loved us so much that his mercy could mitigate his truth, if God loved us so much that his peace could negotiate his righteousness, John said, then surely, if God loved us that much, surely we ought also to love one another. If God loved us that much, and if God forgave us that much, surely we can love each other. We haven't seen God, but we see each other every day. 
And when we see each other, we see each other with all of our faults. But when we extend the same kind of love and mercy and peace in our relationships, then John says, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. It's matured, it's fulfilled, it's completed. This is how we know that we dwell in God and God dwells in us because he's given us of his spirit. He said, you've never even seen God, but you have seen your brother. God forgave you so much. God delivered you from so much. God, God just overlooked so much because he covered it with his blood. Can you do the same for your brother? He said, and we have seen... And we do testify. He said, I was there. I saw it. I walked with him. I was there. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Unlike so many false teachers of his time, and I would add so many false teachers of our time, John sees no contradiction between loving doctrine and loving others. There are people that kind of stand up this straw man argument and they say, well, I've met so many people, they love their doctrine, but they don't love anybody else. Can I tell you, those people are extremists and they're not the majority and they don't speak for us. We love doctrine and we love other people. We love truth and we love sinners. We love holiness and we love people who aren't holy because we've got God's love in us. The love John is writing about is not a love that takes you down a road of tolerance where you accept everything. It's a love that takes you down the road of truth where you can see the difference between truth and error and light and darkness. Because telling the truth is the most loving thing you could ever do for anybody or anybody could ever do for you. The Gnostics refused to believe that Jesus was God incarnate. They were the false teachers. They were the false prophets. They were pushing the false doctrine that John is combating as he writes this letter. Sometimes as you read the scripture, it helps to just kind of pick up a commentary or pick up a Bible dictionary or, or just even go to Wikipedia and look up the, the, the epistle of, of 1 John and see what's going on in the background when John writes it. It'll help you understand a whole lot. John's not just writing about some generic kind of love like you'd find in a Hollywood movie. John is writing about a love for truth that makes us love God and love righteousness and love his commandments and love the church and love sinners. He's talking about a very different kind of love. And the Gnostics, they refused to believe that Jesus was God incarnate. But John makes this revelation a test of fellowship. He said, don't you have anything to do with people that don't believe Jesus was almighty God? You steer clear. John says, I saw it happen. I saw and I testify that Jesus was God robed in the flesh. He said, and we have known and we have believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He says it again. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God dwells in him. Herein is our love made perfect. 
It's made mature. It's fulfilled. It's made complete. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, as Jesus is, so are we in the world. We are the body of Christ in this world today. So John repeats it one more time for emphasis. God is love. It's more than a fridge magnet. It's a fundamental doctrine of the Bible. God is love. So we must believe in his love. We must dwell in his love. We must let his love dwell in us. And that abiding love will affect our attitudes and our actions toward others. That abiding love, John said, it'll give us boldness. It'll give us assurance and confidence in our relationship with God. It'll even give us boldness as we face the day of judgment. We're not terrified to go to heaven. We're not terrified of the rapture. We're not terrified of the judgment. We've got boldness because the love of God dwells in us. We've got a real relationship with him every day. And most of all, John said, as he is, so are we in the world. If you've got that abiding love, it will allow you to be Jesus to the world around you. Because they never met Jesus. They don't know much about Jesus. They've never seen any evidence of Jesus. But you can be Jesus to them. Your love can touch them and God can use you to reach them. Oh, John is coming down to the end of this chapter. A couple more verses here. This one's an important one. We quote a little piece of this verse as well. He said, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect. They're not mature in their love for God. We love him because he first loved us. So let me kind of unpack what John's saying here. When we love God and when we love others and when we know that we know that we know that God loves us, it banishes fear from our lives. I don't think I've ever lived through a year like 2020 when I saw more people bound by fear the media has beat the drum of fear all year long and they're still beating it in 2021. I'm not talking about medical evidence in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not talking about common sense. I'm not talking about obeying restrictions. I'm talking about what's going on in the hearts of people. People are fearful. And, and the devil loves to strum that old guitar of fear and beat that old drum of fear because if he can make you fearful enough, you might just stay home from church even when you're allowed to come. If he can make you fearful enough, you might shut off from everybody else that's a Christian, shut off from your church family, shut off from the voice of your pastor, and you might just say, I'm gonna self-isolate. Self-isolation will kill you spiritually, but people are doing it all the time because of fear. John said, you can tell that the love of God is not mature in them because if they had mature love, perfect love, mature love, casteth out fear. The more mature we are in our relationship with God, the less fear we will experience. Now, I need to back that truck up and run over you one more time. 
Here's what the Bible says. The more mature you are in your relationship with God, the less fear you will experience. Fear hath torment. Fear creates torment. What is torment? Scripturally speaking, torment is the fear or the dread of punishment, the dread of penalty. If you are bound by fear, and I address all of you here, and I address everybody watching me right now, and everyone that will watch this, if you are bound by fear, you need to grow some more in God. If you are bound by fear, you need to talk to Jesus about it and he will set you free from that fear. But you've got to grow a little bit to get set free because perfect love, mature love casts out fear. Mature love will banish torment from your mind. Mature love will banish fear from your mind. That's not just some trick of positive thinking. We can rest in God's love, John said, because he first loved us. He initiated this relationship. I can rest in his love. I can be confident in his love. I can be bold in his love because he started it. He initiated this relationship. And if I've got mature love, it casts out that fear. And, 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 We'll pray in a second when we close this lesson. I'm almost done. I, I've got like two more verses, but I'd like to just lift our hands in this room and just pray against fear for a second. And wherever you're watching, I'd like you to lift your hand if you would, if you're not afraid. I'd like you to lift your hand right now because perfect love, mature love casts out fear. I speak against fear right now. Fear has been beating the drum in the minds of the people of God all year long. I reject I rebuke it. I don't receive it. Jesus, perfect love, mature love, casts out fear. So let the love of God overflow the hearts of your people. Let the love of God overflow the hearts of the saints. Let the love of God overflow the hearts of every new convert. Let the love of God overflow every home that is apostolic. And let that perfect love, let that mature love banish and cast out and trample underfoot the fear that the enemy would try to put upon us. I reject it. I refuse it. I do not receive a spirit of fear. I receive a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind in the name of Jesus. I speak against every attack of the enemy, every spirit of antichrist that would come against the people of God and try to get us to ease off and sit back and shut down. I refuse it. I do not receive it. Perfect love casts out all fear in the name of Jesus. 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 I feel the Holy Ghost in this room. It is not God's will for you to be fearful. It is not God's will for you to have panic attacks. It is not God's will for you to be so filled with anxiety. It is not God's will for you to be always troubled in your spirit. It is not God's will for you to have no peace. It is not God's will for you not to be able to sleep at night. It is not God's will for you to be filled with worry so you can't even function. It is not God's will will. Perfect love casts out all fear. In the name of Jesus. 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 I, I need like two minutes. Can I have it? 
because I want to do more than just pray over it. I speak to everybody that's watching right now and I take authority over fear. I'm not just praying against it. I take authority over it. I cast it out in the name of Jesus. I cast it out of your mind. I cast it out of your heart. I cast it out of your home. I cast it out of your memory. I cast it out of your emotions. Perfect love casts out all fear. I take authority over fear in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Stop being afraid of dying. Jesus died for you, and if you die, you're going to heaven. You're a child of God. Stop being afraid of dying. Stop being afraid of sickness. Stop being afraid of the enemy. You don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Mm, my goodness. There's a prayer meeting breaking out in this little room. I hope you'll join us at home. Folks in here, would you just lift up your hands and just pray for a minute. Somebody at home, they need to feel what we're feeling in this room right now. Somebody at home, they need to be touched by the prayer you're praying right now. Jesus, we banish fear and we welcome love. We banish Satan and we welcome you. We banish the errors and the falseness of Antichrist, but we welcome the truth of the Word of God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. My, my, my. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Just push for one more time, one more moment, church. We're almost finished. We're good. We're, we're on time. Just push for one more moment, one more minute. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. John has been writing in this chapter and a half that we've examined tonight. He has been writing not just about loving God's commandments, but about loving each other, about loving our brothers and sisters, about loving God's family. Why? Because in an era that is possessed by fear and overrun with false teaching and false spirits, you're going to need your brothers and sisters. You're going to need God's family. You're going to need the voice of your pastor. And so the reason the devil wants to attack you and divide you and, and I'm not criticizing, you'll just have to trust my heart. I'm not criticizing the medical profession or the scientists. I'm not going up against them. We're trying to do everything we can to keep everybody here safe. We're doing everything we can, and you know it. I'm looking at a room full of people with masks on. I'm looking at a room that doesn't have all the chairs in it because we're trying to do everything we can to keep you safe. But the devil loves self-isolation, and the devil loves distancing. 
And you can distance yourself physically from me. You wear your mask. Don't you touch me. Don't shake my hand. Don't hug me. I'm fine with that. I'm an introvert anyway. I'll survive. But don't you distance yourself and isolate yourself from the family of God in the end times. My goodness, what a fool's errand that would be because we need each other if we're going to stare down the Antichrist and push back the power of the enemy. And so John says, if a man says, I love God, I'm a Christian, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't even seen? And this commandment have we from him. Who? Jesus. John said, I was there. This is the commandment we have from Jesus himself. That if you're going to say you love God, you better love your brother also. Because you don't think it. You think you're self-sufficient. You got that drummed into your noggin in school. Every little book you read told you you were self-sufficient and you weren't, you didn't need to take a backseat to anybody and you're strong and you're smart and wonderful. You got self-esteem. Sometimes we got so much self-esteem that we don't understand that we need God and we need each other. I esteem myself and I esteem all of you, but I esteem the opinion of the word of God higher than all of that. He said, this is the commandment we have from Jesus, that if you're going to say you love God, you better love your brother also. The height of hypocrisy is to say you love God, to claim you serve God while you withhold love from others. How can you say you love an invisible God while you ignore a visible person? Jesus himself commanded us to demonstrate our love for him through the love we show toward others. And John said, and I was there and I heard him say it. Here's what John wrote in his own gospel. These are the words of Jesus, not far before he was betrayed. He looked at his disciples around that table and he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That was 60 years ago, but John remembers it like it was yesterday. And he writes it down in his gospel and he references it here in 1 John. He said, I remember the night Jesus looked at all of us and he said, if you're going to say you love me, if you're going to say you serve me, you love each other and you serve each other. And 60 years later, John said, and it's more important than ever because there's spirits of antichrist floating around and there's false doctrines and false prophets and false teachers and there's people falling away from truth and if there ever was an era when you need to lock in tight to your church family and lock in tight to the voice of your pastors and lock in tight to accountability one with another and lock in tight to loving the brothers and sisters that God is letting you go to heaven with it would be today because the enemy's fighting fiercely 
But I back up to what John said a few verses ago. But greater is he that is in you than all that trash and junk that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than every false doctrine and every false teaching that would try to snare you. And by the way, greater is he that is in you than the fear that would try to take a hold of your spirit. God is greater and he's greater in you by the power of the Holy Ghost. In this room, would you stand right now and would you lift up your hands wherever you're standing and would you just lift up your voice one more time and let's pray before we just kind of shut down and turn off the webcast and go home. And if you're watching at home, you're with us, I want you to pray right now. Would you do that wherever you are? Would you just lift up your voice and pray? I'm still stuck on this fear thing. God wants to look after the fear issue in somebody's heart tonight. God wants to deliver somebody from fear tonight. You don't have to be afraid. You're a child of God. You don't have to be afraid. The Holy Ghost is in you. Church, right here, lift up your voice. We've got about a fourth of everybody that could be here tonight. Would you just kind of lift up your voice and make up the gap for everybody that couldn't be here in the building tonight? And let's pray. I want them to feel it through the webcast. I want them to feel it over the internet that there's somebody here praying. Lord Jesus, in your name, one more time, I speak the word of God over your people. Perfect love casts out fear. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I speak the word. I refuse every word but your word. I refuse every spirit but your spirit. God, help us to stand strong and be your church. But Jesus, we do that when we love you and we love each other. So knit us together with love. Bind us together with love. Jesus, knit your church together so that we can't become isolated one from another. Tie us together. Bind us together. Knit us together more than ever before to face the end times and be strong and be a witness. In Jesus' name I pray it. In Jesus' name I pray it.